Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Well, I have been speaking for several weeks now about the subject of courage and there is some, oh, by the way, kids, you take off to your classes there and have a good time. There is some reasonable probability that this will be the last in this series on courage, but as you know, I can't make promises about those types of things. But I have been speaking about courage from several different aspects. In some ways, this series could have been entitled entirely about faith. Because as I've said, as you walk with Christ and your faith grows, inevitably your courage is growing simultaneously. That is, a byproduct of deep faith is stronger courage. Now you may not realize that your courage is growing. When you find out is when you encounter something that is bigger than what you've dealt with in the past and you realize that God is with you. And he is carrying you through to deal with what you did not think you could handle. And he does this in such a way to reveal himself, his nature, his character, and his work in you. But courage, as I've said, is rooted in truth and in love. And we're going to talk today about another aspect of a foundation of courage. But it's rooted in truth and love because it has to be unconditional love that comes from God, the type of love that really reaches out to every person regardless of their situation. It's rooted in truth because sometimes people think they're doing courageous things, but they are deceived in doing something that is unwise. And then last week we talked about that courage sometimes has to do with relating to God. The title of last week's teaching was The Courage to Trust, and I wasn't talking primarily about the courage to trust people, but sometimes certainly it takes courage to trust others. But I was talking about the courage to trust God himself, which in some ways seems like an odd concept. Why would I need courage to trust God? But in fact, as you go through this life, is it not true that he stretches you, that he takes you into situations you never imagined, that he gives you things in your life that are really significant trials, and that what he's doing in the midst of those is saying to you, trust him, have faith in him, and have the courage to persevere. There are lots of times where people encounter situations where their faith is giving them the courage to move forward to trust God. And we talked about several examples of this last week, the first of which was Job, which is probably the best example because he lost family members, he lost his wealth, and eventually his health. He was in a desperate place. And yet the scripture says that he indicated, despite all that was going on, he would still trust God. Now, he didn't understand, he didn't realize there was a spiritual battle going on around him and over him that Satan had targeted him, that his life was really an example that God was using not only for that time period but for all of humanity since. 
But in the midst of it, he said, I will trust. And you see, there are lots of times in our lives, are there not, when you come to a place where you don't understand, where it's confusing, where it seems overwhelming, where you wonder if God has deserted you, and yet he is saying to you, trust me. And somewhere in your soul, you have to resolve, Lord, I will trust you, even though I do not understand. And we gave other examples of this because in Psalms, it says that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death all of the time. You see, just like Job, who faced it literally right before him, this this threat of the shadow of death is all around us all of the time. We could live in perfect fear of it, just cloistered away, afraid of what's going on. Or we could live in trust no matter what's occurring. You see the scripture there in the psalm says that it, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil. For the Lord's rod and staff, the, the shepherd's rod and staff, they comfort me, they protect me. In essence, the psalmist here was declaring, Lord, I will trust you even in the darkest valley. And then we talked about Mary, who was another example of somebody having to trust God to have courage to fulfill the mission that he had assigned to her, that she had this very unique role of being the mother of Christ. And of course, initially, this was a very strange thing because she was a virgin. She was betrothed to be married. Her fiancé was going to break off the relationship and just quietly put her away because it appeared she had sinned against him and against the Lord. But instead, she had been chosen for a very special mission, and she submitted to it. She was a humble person. It took courage to stand and carry out this role because surely there were many people who were talking about her and maligning her for being someone who had been unfaithful in their eyes. But what I pointed out the most last week about what courage was required from her at the most critical time was when she witnessed the crucifixion. I mean, can any parent imagine witnessing the crucifixion of your child? And even though he was an adult, still, he was the one that Mary had cradled in her arms, the little one. And probably she was extraordinarily confused, as I'm sure all of the disciples were, because they had seen the miracles and the power of Christ. They'd even seen, some of them had seen the transfiguration, where the glory of the Lord was upon him. But you see, at the crucifixion, they had to think, what went wrong? What's happening? It's probably why Peter was afraid and denied Christ. He, he thought, I misunderstood. And see, if you were Mary in that moment, she had to reflect on all that and then the courage to recognize I fulfilled what God called me to. But then the glory of the resurrection was at hand. It's why we celebrate Easter each year. That Easter is about the resurrection, that all of Christianity, really everything in this world, hinges upon the resurrection of Christ. For if the resurrection is not true, then it's all a falsehood and we're foolish. But if the resurrection is true, then the ultimate truth is Christ. And you see, you and I know it's the truth because what? The Holy Spirit dwelling in us testifies over and over that Christ is alive. 
The way that you know Christ is alive is he is living in you. The testimony of the power of Christ in each and every soul. And you see, when Mary witnessed the resurrection, then she knew it was all worthwhile. That it was all true. That it all had come to full culmination. Certainly not in a way that she or even the disciples could have imagined, but it was real and powerful. The last person we talked about last week with regard to this idea of having courage to trust God was Noah. Because he was given an assignment that was certainly out of the ordinary. Certainly he would have been ridiculed by those around him. It took him a long period of time to accomplish it. And yet the scripture says about him, he did everything that God commanded. That he had the courage to trust in the face of a world that had gone into chaos of evil. Somehow it seems to reflect the world in which you and I live. And yet Noah stood firm, trusted God, and had the courage to walk with him for a task that was beyond human comprehension and now in reflection. Just think when we meet Noah in heaven, that all of us are descendants of him, essentially. And to reflect upon this mission that he was given. I suspect that Noah and I are going fishing on a large vessel when we get to heaven. Now, you see, the last part of this last week was this. In the Psalms, it says, when I am afraid, I will trust you. That in God I trust, I will not be afraid. You see, there are a lot of times where fear wants to overwhelm us and stymie us, stop us from doing what God wants. And it's not that you eliminate fear, it's rather that you walk through it, that you have the courage to persevere, and somehow fear does not have a power over you at that point. That I trust him, that I have the courage to trust. Now, I want to culminate this teaching with what I've entitled The Courage to Live, which essentially could be the title of the entire series. Because when I've been talking about having courage, essentially every aspect of it is having the courage to live life as God wants you to live it. You see, the world would stand against the fullness of what Christ wants to do. And it wants to pull you away from experiencing the best of life. In fact, if you listen to all of the messages of the world and you go after the things that the world encourages, what you will find at the end of those roads is emptiness or guilt or shame or regret, all of those things and more. But if you pursue Christ with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind, you have the courage to live as he calls you to live. What you find is the richness of life, the deepness of life, where he pours his life into you and then out through you into the lives of others. And essentially, walking with Christ is having the courage to live daily. Now, to explore this, I want to go in somewhat of a a different route and then come back to primarily this subject of the courage to live. And here is the scripture about the point at which the soldiers and others came to arrest Christ. It's really what sets in motion the trials, the mock trials, really, that he went through. The time before Pilate, 
eventually the scourging, and finally the crucifixion. And so, as they came to arrest Jesus, Peter had a sword with him. He pulled it out, and he struck the servant of the high priest. The scripture says he cut off his ear. And Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, you've noticed I put a little title here, Defenseless. Now, in fact, was Jesus defenseless, that is, without the capability of defending himself? No, not at all. In fact, he had the power to stop everything. He could have judged each person there and give them the sentence of death immediately. He could have called legions of angels to do the work necessary to stop what was going on. But he had a mission, the mission that he had been called to, the purpose for which he was born. Before the foundations of the earth, God had decided that at the fullness of time, the perfect time that Christ would come into the world, that he would take the likeness of a man, that he would humble himself, live a sinless life, and be the, the sacrifice for all of humanity. And so this is his primary mission. And you see, this thing of Jesus being fully God and fully man is impossible for any of us to understand. We can do the best we can to think about it, but still, it's, it's impossible to grasp. But you see, in his humanness, he still had to go to the cross. He had to suffer the scourging the pain, the agony. It was not an easy task. This is why he was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, realizing what he was going to deal with. And it took courage to persevere to fulfill his mission. Now, of course, being God, being fully divine, he had perfect supernatural courage. But in his humanness, he still had to live it out had to walk it out. And he could have, I'm sure, defended himself at any number of any number of crossroads in this outcome that was about to take place. But instead, he chose not to do so. When they came to arrest him, he humbly submitted. Now let me suggest to you that there is a third leg, you might say, to this idea of courage that is supernatural courage that comes from God. The first is love, the second is truth, the third is humility. Like a three-legged stool that needs each one to stand, that true courage that comes from God is rooted in love, truth, and humility. See, human courage is often rooted in Pride, not humility. But real courage that comes from God to fulfill the mission that he has for you is a humble courage. And that's what you find in Jesus, that he humbly submitted to the will of God the Father. Another example is this. He appeared before Pilate, and of course Pilate didn't really want to convict him and judge him. Remember his Pilate's wife had warned him because of a dream she'd had to have nothing to do with this man. And and Pilate was obviously trying to wiggle his way out. And eventually, even though he condemned Jesus, 
he symbolically washed his hands saying, I have nothing to do with this, but he could not wash his soul for he was guilty. But as he was talking to Jesus, he said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, it is true what you say, that he is the ultimate king of everyone. The chief priest and others there were hurling accusations at him so that Pilate would convict him and condemn him. And then Pilate asked him, aren't you going to defend yourself? All these things that they're saying against you. The scripture says, Jesus made no reply. In fact, Pilate was amazed that he didn't. How could a man stand courageously, knowing what he's facing, and humbly and quietly submit to it? Now, let me suggest to you that it is natural for a human being to want to defend ourselves. That is, that all of us, whether we're physically attacked and try to defend ourselves or we're verbally attacked and try to defend ourselves, that it is a natural thing for human beings to want to defend ourselves. And yet there are times when doing so is unwise. There's a Christian psychologist by the name of Henry Cloud who in a recent years wrote a book about types of people that you deal with. And he said there are three basic types. Now, in categorizing people into three groups, surely there's a wide array within each group. So it's not like there are only three specific types. There's a lot of variability. But Cloud said that there are wise people, people who think before they act, who are cautious with their words, who you can talk to, relate to, You can have a disagreement with them, but it can be a healthy disagreement. You might have a conflict with them, but you can sit down and talk with them and work it out. A wise person is somebody that's enjoyable to be around, that you welcome into your life. And then Cloud says that there are foolish people. They're not inherently evil in all ways. I mean, all of us have sin and falling short of the glory of God. All of us have a sinful nature and a propensity towards some evil things, but foolish people just aren't consumed with evil. They just make unwise choices. They're the people who, like, get all excited about a lot of things and buy a lot of stuff and realize they've accumulated a high amount of credit card debt and regret it. They did something foolish. Or they went out with some friends and had a little too much to drink and said some things that they wish they had not said, they are foolish. And fact is that all of us have been foolish at some time or another. Now, a foolish person is is a person that sometimes you can relate to, maybe even disagree with, work some things out, and sometimes not. Sometimes a foolish person will stand against you, walk away, maybe be sarcastic, whatever, be difficult to deal with. But there is hope for a foolish person. If not, well, there'd be no hope for any of us. And surely, as I think of my younger life, I was certainly enriched in foolishness. But then Cloud says there there is a third category of people, and that 
has to do with people who are evil. Now, you don't just wake up one day and become evil. You make a series of choices in which you are participating in some sinful behavior, in which you are inviting evil into your life, to the point that it gains a foothold and control over you. It's a person who lied a little bit and gained something by doing so and then lied more and more and more until lying became a stronghold and consumed their lives and then they lie all the time. Well, if you had an employee that you needed to rely upon but you found that they lied all of the time. It was a repetitive thing. You've warned them. Well, they're consumed with a measure of evil, and there's really nothing you can do. And you see, Cloud, in writing about this, talks about how you can really work with wise people, and you can sometimes work with foolish people, but when it comes to evil people, you must draw the line. And then, of course, there are are types of evil that become so strong in people that they are very dangerous to be around. People who have become, let's say, sexually perverse and they're dangerous to be around. Or people whose thoughts are set on wickedness all the time and lead others into destruction. They're consumed with evil and don't care if it hurts others. It always bugs me a little bit, like those who say, are making a lot of wealth off of distributing illegal drugs that they know are taking the lives of people but have no remorse about it. See, there's an inherent evil there. Probably a spirit of death has a stronghold in them, and they don't care. And you see, so there are categories of people like this, and as I say, the array is probably wider than just those simple categories. But you see, in Jesus' case, when he's standing before Pilate and the chief priest, which group is he dealing with? Is he dealing with people who are genuinely wise? No. Is he dealing with people who are foolish? Probably some of them. But primarily, he's dealing with people who are explicitly evil. You know, the Pharisees, despite being the religious leaders, the people who should have modeled what it meant to love more than anybody else, had plotted over and over to kill Jesus. I mean, what type of religious leader is setting about to kill someone to defend their position? That's what it was about, their pride. They felt threatened by Jesus. They were consumed with evil, and the root of it was pride, And you see, there's a principle here, I think, and that is that when you're dealing with somebody who is consumed with evil, it is useless to defend yourself. When you're dealing with somebody who is wise and you have a disagreement, you can reasonably defend yourself and the two of you can come to a place of recognizing what is good in that situation. There's a gentleman that I really, really highly respect that I consider very, very wise. And oftentimes I like to run things by him and get his thoughts. And he has this really nice way of telling me I'm wrong. Like I'll, I'll say something and instead of saying that is one of the dumber ideas I've ever heard, he'll say, Robert, have you considered this? He has a wise and gentle way of saying, 
straighten up. You see, if you're dealing with a wise person, then you can interact and work with them. But see, we're talking about here the courage to live and a humble courage. And sometimes it takes courage not to defend yourself. In other words, if somebody hurls an accusation at you, sometimes it takes courage to just let it go. Somebody hurts you in some way, sometimes it takes courage to forgive them and release them, but not to defend yourself. Somebody steals from you. Rather than trying to get even, get revenge, sometimes it takes courage to just let it go. You're dealing with evil, not with wisdom. And you see, this thing about the courage to live, I believe it takes humility to walk in genuine courage to do what God wants you to do. And sometimes that courage, that humble courage, one that is not defending yourself, is what is necessary to bring you to repentance. You see, when you are wrong, there is an inherent idea in each of us that somehow I can justify, rationalize, and defend what I did. But it takes a humility and courage to say, I was wrong, to repent. You know, I said all of last year in talking about a true church that God is calling the church to repent of our our idolatry of the world. And it is very necessary that we come to a place of humility, of brokenness, and have the courage to say, We have been wrong. And there's a very good example of this in Scripture. And that's the prodigal son. Because the prodigal did this. He came to his senses. You see, he had asked for his portion of the inheritance that he was due before his father had died. Obviously, he didn't have a lot of respect for his father. And he wanted to go off and live in a foolish way, and he did so. He squandered what he had inherited. He found himself destitute. And finally, the scripture says that he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's men have food to spare, and I am starving to death? He said, I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, that I have sinned against heaven and against you. You see, now, doesn't it take courage to confess your sin, to be honest, to say that I was wrong? And it takes humility. See, he didn't know exactly how his father would react. Of course, we know the story. But in human terms... There are plenty of fathers that would have said what? I'm done with you. I gave you an opportunity. You wasted it. I'm done with you. Sadly, over the years, many have shared with me about their own earthly fathers who instead of showing them unconditional love, 
rejected them over and over. Sometimes people have shared with me that they were making choices that were godly choices that they knew God wanted them to do, but their earthly father was opposed to it and rejected them for it. I knew of a person years ago who, uh, a lady who had married, and she had an interracial marriage with a very nice gentleman, and her parents had disowned her. They were so prejudiced and so wrapped up in that type of evil. You see, sometimes there are those who reject wrongly. And see, he could have gone back to his father, and his father could have said, away from me. See, it took this humility and courage to go back and to repent. He said, I'm not even worthy to be called your son anymore. I'd just like to be a hired hand. I could go back and live on the family estate where I could work and serve you, then he would be pleased. Of course, we know the story, and it says while he was still a long way away that his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and ran to him. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. See, now it's interesting. This is an example of God the Father, clearly. It's the unabandoned or it's uninhibited love that God is pouring out on the prodigal son in this case, which is the same love that he pours out on each one of us, that he ran to him and kissed him. You see, now, if you think about it, it took some courage on the part of the father too, didn't it? To swallow his pride, to not be judgmental, He could have set standards and said, well, son, if you meet these, then you will be allowed back into the house. But instead, his courage was to love. We've talked about that through this series, that sometimes it takes courage to love. Like the example of Joseph loving his brothers. Or Esther showing love to the entire Jewish nation and standing for them. Sometimes it takes courage to love. And in this case, you see, there's a, there's a humbleness about it. The son didn't come back and defend himself and say it was somebody else's fault. See, here's one of the issues. If you're dealing with an evil person and you try to point out their evil to them, if you try to confront them, inevitably what they will do is blame you or somebody else. I've seen this Rather often, somebody confronts somebody about their sin and the person deeply entrenched in it and blinded by it will blame others. They often blame, they will blame the person who confronted them. But you see, a person who is humble, repentant, walking in that type of courage, accepts responsibility. Boy, wouldn't it be great in the world in which we live, if everybody accepted responsibility for their own actions and stopped blaming others. You see, it takes some courage to walk this way. And what it's really about, if you have the courage to live, is you have the courage to die to your self-centeredness. In Philippians, Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
In other words, to live is all about him, that he had died to himself. He's talking about here that he has died to himself, and whether he left this world or stayed in this world, it doesn't matter because either way to live is to live in Christ. Likewise, in Galatians, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You see, the courage to live, a humble, broken, contrite courage, recognizes that it's not about me, it's about him. That I have died to myself, that I am called to have the courage to live in Christ. That's interesting, during this series, and somewhat to my surprise, some people have shared with me how they desperately needed courage at this time. And in ways that I might not have anticipated. Probably there's some of you right now who are strongly in need of courage. There's a gentleman in our church and he wouldn't mind me sharing this with you. In fact, he would welcome me to do so that you would pray for him. But many of you will know Dave Ferris, maybe not by name, but by his work. Dave is usually up here in the percussion corner with all the different percussion instruments. And he's been fighting cancer since about August or so that's around his eye. He's had one surgery, and he's had chemo and radiation. And then today, he's leaving to go to Vanderbilt for yet another surgery, and this time he's been told he will lose his right eye. He sat here last night, and we prayed with him. And I share his name explicitly, Dave Ferris, that you would pray for him Tomorrow, especially as he goes through surgery and in the days ahead. But as we've been going through this series, obviously the Lord's been speaking to him about having the courage to walk through what is perhaps the hardest battle of his life. But I'm sure there are others here who have battles that are going on. Maybe some who are watching online and maybe even the reason you're not here right now is because of the difficulty of the battle that you're in but God wants to impart to you the courage to walk through whatever is before you keeping in mind that it's a courage rooted in love in truth and humility see that's the kind of courage that perseveres it's deeply strong and rich the courage that a human manifests, it can last for a short period, but one that is deeply rooted can sustain you. So I want us to take time to pray, and just you individually, wherever you need courage, that you would invite the Lord to impart it to you in a special way. Let's pray. Lord, you know the circumstances and situations of every person in this room. And you know where we need courage that comes from you to fulfill what you have called us to do in loving others, in forgiving, in standing firm for truth, in confronting evil. Give us the courage to go to others to be reconciled. 
courage to repent and receive forgiveness. For some here, the courage to persevere. For some, the courage to step out and take the risk to follow what you're calling them to do. For some, the courage not to give up, not to surrender. For all of us, Lord, I pray that you would give us a supernatural gift of courage. That we might be your servants. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org. And make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.